So wrapping up our series, this book, okay, if you don't have a Bible, we have them available in French and in English. As you leave today, take one, our gift to you, um, because we don't all have one. Also, there's this wonderful thing called a phone, uh, one of these. Uh, there are free apps on there where you can actually get the Bible like right now. It's amazing. Uh, it's incredible. But this book holds 66 books written by roughly 40 different authors, um, spanning over 2,000 periods of time, written in two primary languages, lots of different genres. It's a massive undertaking to say, I'm gonna read the Bible, right? Most of us can't make it through a Harry Potter novel, let alone this, right? Confusing, right? These are words, Leviticus, hardships, like things that, like there's this book called Leviticus that few make it through, right? If you make it through Leviticus, you're gonna go all the way for sure, all right? Um, but it's, it's this massive book. But in this book, what we're gonna do this morning is I'm gonna tell you the one message, the one story that is traced all the way through this. Jordan read it for us already. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 48, we heard about. And this is Jesus basically saying that all, all of the Bible, all of scripture, it's, it's about me. It's about me. All of it is pointing to him. So the question that we're gonna have to ask this morning is, is this message, is this story, is it true? Or is it a fable? Or is it a fable? I, I was on a train last summer in Chicago and going to see U2 concert, amazing, great. Um, and as we were going, I heard this guy geeking out, obviously geeking out, about Harry Potter. Okay. Now, he was obviously someone who grew up reading Harry Potter, and he was talking about this. He says, man, it was such a great series until the end. He's like, resurrection doesn't happen. He's like, that's like a kid story. And I want to be like, bro, you read Harry Potter. Like, you know, flying brooms, Quidditch, is that what it is? I don't I, let me say it more confidently. Quidditch, uh, things of that sort, you know, turning in, like, this is all a kid's story, in a sense. And it was the resurrection that this guy had a problem with because that doesn't happen. Dead people don't come to life. And so many people are like, I love, I love the Bible. I love the Bible, but the one problem I have is with the resurrection. And many people inside of churches, right, the name church on their building, I would say, man, we believe in the resurrection. We just don't even believe, we just don't believe that it was literal. We believe it was like a spiritual resurrection. But obviously, people don't come back from the dead. In, in many churches, that message is proclaimed. So is this story just a fable? Is this something that's told by someone who, who is mad. Do you remember uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Uh, my kids and I, we went to Maine, two of my kids, and I, we went to Maine for like a day, uh, came back, we listened to the Chronicles of Narnia on the way back, and I was reminded of, of Lucy when Lucy first went into Narnia, and she came back, and the kids didn't believe her, and they went and sat with the professor, and he said, well, is your sister mad? Is she crazy? Well, no, she has no history of being crazy. Okay, well, then this story can't be crazy. Is she known to be a liar? Is it Edmund or Lucy that's a liar? And they're like, well, Edmund would be the liar. Okay, so if she's not mad and she's not a liar, then, then why wouldn't we believe her that this was true? And so it's the same thing that we're walking into today with, with the Bible. Is it, is it mad? Is it a liar? Is it actually true? And I think a lot of it has to rest on the resurrection, so we'll spend some time there. But I wanna start where the Bible actually starts, and that's in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and, and here it says this, in the beginning, God, right? So we have it there, God. God, let me tell you about who God is briefly. We believe that God is eternal. This isn't like we all sat down and thought really hard and, and we just wrote down what we believe God might be. This is who God has revealed himself to be through scripture, through the Bible. Okay, so we believe that, that God has never had a beginning and will never have an end. He calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the, the Greek first and Greek last letter, or the A to Z, or those Americans who snuck in here, A to Z, all right? So God says, I am eternal. 
I am eternal. I've never had a beginning, never have an end. I have always existed. And God has existed in this very strange way that none of us have existed. That God has always been one God that's three, while at the same time being one. So we we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit being one in essence, but three distinct beings, but one. You're like, man, this gives me a headache already. Yeah, the greatest theologians have said that this is so simple a child can understand it, but so complex that if you think about it for too long, you'll go nutso. You'll go crazy because our minds can't bend that way. How does one be three be one without losing any of who he really is? And yet this is who he's revealed himself to be. Eternal one in three. And he's holy, which means perfect. He has no blemish. He has no moles. He has nothing wrong with him at all. No birthmark because he's never been born. God has always existed in this perfection. He's faithful. He always fulfills his promises. Wouldn't that be amazing to meet with someone that says they're gonna do something and you know they're actually going to do it. He's faithful. He's unchanging. That's nice with faithful as well. So yesterday when he said, hey, I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna provide everything you need. He didn't get up today and be like, I changed my mind. He's unchanging. So he's always been, will always be unchanging, faithful, one in three, three in one. And he's not lacking. So we're gonna talk about creation in a moment. And, and sometimes weird things happen in marriages where couples aren't getting along well. And they think that by bringing in this seven to 10 pound screaming object called a baby into the world is somehow gonna bring their marriage together. I'm like, you're crazy, you're crazy. But sometimes we create out of our lack. We're lacking, so if we just create something, that will bring us fulfillment. God was not lacking in anything when he created. It was out of the overflow that he created. And the final thing I wanna say about God is he was, he was love, and he is love. He is love, and that's not the sappy rom-com love. This is the, the never-ending, never-giving-up, always-pursuing, steadfast love. And he created from this love. And so this is who God is. And there's so many more aspects to who he is that we'll explore this morning. And you're gonna get a lot of information this morning. And I'm gonna try and talk quasi-fast knowing that there's people in here with English as a second language, all right? But try and track with me. This is who God is. And then we go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And so this is where this story begins. God creates. He creates. He is the author of life. He made you and I, not just because he wanted a reality television show to watch all the time. In fact, not for that purpose at all. He created us so that we would know him. So that we would know him. We don't read the Bible to just know about him. Ah, I memorized all the facts about who God is. I'm amazing. No, it's not about knowing about him. It's about knowing him. And what we know about him should lead us to a deeper understanding and and knowledge and relationship with him. I know a lot of facts about my wife. And when I learn new facts about my wife, it should help me know her better, right? And it changes the way that I interact with her because I want a deeper relationship. He is the author of life. He created us so we could know him. He made us with value. Some of you feel devalued this morning. Some of you walk around wishing someone would notice you and would say, man, you have so much value, or woe man. You know, I I don't mean to be saying just man, so man and woe man, all right? You have so much value this morning. You really do, why? Because you've been created by this God. And he made you in his image. You're not an accident. Doesn't matter what anyone has told you here on this earth. You aren't an accident. He thought of you. You weren't a thought 200 years ago in anyone else's mind. But in his, you were. You have value. You have meaning. You have purpose. He created to be the great provider and protector of all humanity and over all things. And he made us for life, not for death. 
God didn't create us to put a little clock and say, oh, this would be interesting to watch the clock tick down. Watch the ball drop, life gone. No, he created us for life. And he created us to work with him. Right, I often use the illustration of going to work with our dads or our moms. You know, take your kid to work day, which is more annoying for the parent, uh, but it's quasi enjoyable till the child starts playing upside down in the trash can, right? But this is kind of the, the take your kid to work. And the father, God the father takes us to, to work with him. That's why we were made. And he takes us to work to display his glory and his fame. When we get excited about something, have you ever met someone who's really excited about a pyramid scheme and they don't know that they're part of the pyramid scheme? but they're really excited to spread the fame and glory of this ear treatment that will remove earwax forever, whatever, right? It's always something strange. So you're like, I'm not sure we completely need that. But they're really excited to display the glory of this product. Well, that's a small picture of a non-pyramid scheme that the Lord is doing to display his glory because when we understand who he really is and what he's really done, man, that's all we wanna talk about. Uh, Jesus rescued me, opened my eyes to see who he was and is 14 years ago. Sounds strange to some of you maybe, I'll explain that later. And ever since then, I've only wanted to talk to people about Jesus. I wanna see his glory and his fame known by everyone. He made us to, to walk with him. He made us to have job security. That would be sweet for some of us. He made us for job security and life security. He made us to live. He made us to be with him. He made us to display and to spread his glory and his fame across all of the earth so that everyone and everything would know who he is. Beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. When God created, he put two trees in the middle of the garden, kind of like our living room, right? You always have to walk around the coffee table. No one ever puts coffee on the table. It's just there to stub your toe and to have kids hit their heads on and things like that. But like a coffee table in the middle of the room, you always had to walk around with these two trees that God placed there. One was a tree of life and one was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. The day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're going to die, right? Good boundary. This is one of those like Okay, there's a gate on the balcony. Don't jump over the balcony, you'll die. Right, this is what God is saying. And we as humanity, what did we do? We jumped off the balcony. We went to that tree. We thought the electrical outlet was very attractive. Right, we did this. We did this. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There it is. When we ate, when we as humanity ate of the fruit of this tree, something called a curse came onto all of us. We were made to spread the glory of God, but what we did was we said, ah, I have a better idea than God. I'm gonna go to the fruit of this tree because this is finally gonna make me just like God. I'm gonna be like him. God's holding out on me. This is, the, this is my portal into the world to be like God. And so they took the fruit, they ate the man and his wife, and their eyes were open, the Bible says. They knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. You ever done something where you feel shame, you wanna hide? You don't, wanna, you don't want anyone to see you, and they don't even know what you did, but still you just wanna hide because you feel dirty. You feel, oh, I shouldn't have done that. This is what was going on. The beginning, this curse took over. Because what we as humanity wanted to do, instead of displaying and spreading the glory of God, we became glory thieves. We wanted to take the glory of God for ourselves. That I wanna start a company so that everyone will know how great I am. I wanna start a family and a legacy so everyone would know how great I am. I want my name here so everyone, right? We, we're tracking with this, right? Because this is what our hearts are like, if we're honest that we want for our glory and our importance and our name and our renown to be known. But we weren't made for that. We were made so that God's name would be known. That we would be able to live under his perfect rule and reign, not under our broken rule and reign. Right? How many people in Canada, is it, okay, let me say this a different way because this is polarizing, all right? 
Do 100% of Canadians feel like Justin Trudeau is doing a bang up job? No. Some people will say he's a broken ruler, right? Of course, everyone in the States thinks Trump's doing a good job, so we'll just move on from there, right? But, right, we don't all think that everyone is doing a great job. We would say, ah, that leadership is broken. We live under broken rulers. But God didn't make us for that. God made us to live under his rule, under his reign. And when this curse came on humanity and on everything, look what happened. Genesis 3, 18 and 19. Thorns and thistles. Now, if you work in an office building, this might not be a big deal for you, but if you're a farmer, how many of you are like, man, I can't wait to go into the thorns and thistles and sow my apple seeds. You know, me and Johnny Appleseed, we're gonna get it done in the thorns and thistles. No, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust into dust, you shall return. This curse was gonna bring struggle and death for all humanity. I just went down to Maine uh, and preached the funeral of my uncle yesterday, right? To, to dust we return. That, that life is not for any of us anymore. The thing we have in common is that our destiny is death. Nobody beats it, nobody gets around it, doesn't matter how rich, how poor, what color your skin is, where you grew up, what language you speak, none of it. We all die. And this is because of us. And there's, there's this longing inside of us, though, that we want to be satisfied. We really, really want to be satisfied. You can't scrub that longing. So it's like there's something that's been put in us that won't go away. Not that voice in your head. It's just this, this thing that, that ah, I want to be satisfied in whatever I do. This is a trajectory of all humanity that we want to be satisfied. So after we brought this curse into the world on ourselves, look at what God does. He covenants with us. He makes this promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, okay, who's, who's Satan, right? That's a, a long story we won't get into this morning, but I'll put enmity between Satan's serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and the offspring, okay? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So one day there's someone coming who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to crush evil for, for all time. This is the first mention of good news after the curse has been laid down. And it's an unconditional promise. God doesn't say, I'm gonna do this if humanity can be religious enough. I'm gonna do this if people pray to me enough or read scripture enough or whatever enough. No, it's an unconditional promise. He's going to do it. So it's not about religion. It's about the righteous one who is coming to fix the problem of the curse. And so this covenant, this could take a really long time to, to unpack because the Bible's a really big book, but there's a few key figures. Let me introduce you to them. So this first promise is made to Adam and, and Eve that there's someone coming that's going to remove this curse. Then a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, we run into this guy named Abraham. Abraham was a moon worshiper at the time. Uh, Abraham wasn't you know, sitting inside a church building or temple talking to the true and living God. He was following other gods completely. And God comes to him. And at the time, he was an old man, probably about 75 years old, with a 65-year-old wife, barren wife named Sarai. And they had no future in terms of legacy. And then God comes to them with this crazy promise, Genesis 12, Verse one to three. The Lord said to Abram, this was pre-Abraham name, Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. Now, like no kids, old man, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this, this promise is massive. Genesis 3, 15, there's someone coming who's going to remove evil. Now we track it into Genesis 12. It's gonna come from the old barren couple, 
right? There's a son that's gonna come and from that son, all families of the earth are going to be blessed. So in scripture, it's saying, okay, there's someone who's gonna remove evil and he's a son that's coming. So then we run into another guy much later named David, okay? I'm just flying through the Bible, right? You're getting it all in one shot. Abraham to David, many generations later, and God gives David. Now let me tell you about David, because some of you think maybe that in order to be a part of a church, you have to be a really good person. In order to be part of the people of God, your life has to be completely put together. All right, David. David was the king of God's people on earth. Um, David was a murderer, and he murdered a man to cover up uh, a time that he called a man's wife into his palace, slept with her, got her pregnant, and then tried to get the guy to come back from battle, sleep with his wife so he could convince him that he was the dad of the baby, but he wouldn't sleep with her because he was actually faithful, unlike David, so David had this guy killed. That's our leader. Isn't that awesome? Great story, right? Murderer, adulterer, um, not dad of the year. Okay, you read about his kids, and you're like, wow, seems like the quiet times of the kids before tucking them into bed didn't go well or something, right? But what does God do? He makes David a promise, not conditional on David, but on God. And here it is, 2 Samuel seven sixteen. This is a book in the Old Testament. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Not dependent on anything you do, but dependent on what I do. So here's the promise, here's the message. I'm gonna send someone to crush evil. He's gonna come from the descendants of Abraham. He's gonna be a blessing to the entire earth. He's gonna be a king through the line of this man, David. And then we get inside of the prophets. People who are speaking about this one who is going to come. And listen to this from the book of Isaiah. Maybe you've heard this or received this on a Christmas card. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is who we're waiting for, right? The son who's coming, the child who's coming. And the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here's what we see. There's now a promise 900 years before Jesus comes into the world, all right? And here it is, a leader's coming and this leader is gonna be a leader of the world. He's the child you've been waiting for. He's a king coming from the line of David and he's going to be God. This isn't some random person coming into the world. This is gonna be God coming into the world. And he's gonna bring peace. How many of us want peace, right? We long for this. He's gonna bring eternal peace. There'll be no end to the peace that he is bringing. And he's only going to do what is just and right. Don't we long for a leader like that? This is what the Bible is saying this one who's coming is going to be like. He's gonna crush evil. He's gonna be from Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. He's gonna be a king that only does what is good, right, perfect, and true. And he's gonna be God. And so 2,000 years ago, God came down. God the Son got off his throne and came down and was born a man. And it wasn't a Benjamin Button thing, it was he was born as a baby and grew into a man. He came down, he came down. And we go back to that that book of Isaiah we just read from to hear about where this person would, would come from and listen, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. How many of you know virgins having babies? It's a pretty sure sign, right? Uh, Look for the virgin who's pregnant, but then you would assume she's not a virgin, right? But this would be the sign, and this is what we talked about in December, about this this virgin who is going to, to have to give birth to this child and this child wasn't going to be a normal child. He was going to look normal, but he was gonna be named Emmanuel, 
which means God is with us. This is the story of the Bible, that we as humanity screwed everything up and God says, I'm gonna come and fix it. We think of God as being this very mean ruler who's only looking, us, looking at us to, to hit us with his law book, but he's saying, I've come to fix it. You messed it all up. I'm coming to make things right. What we see in Matthew 1.1 is this, Matthew's a book in the New Testament. The, this book starts off the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's making sure that as we're reading the Bible, we're connecting the dots. Oh, this is the one that's, that we've been, we've been hearing about, the promised one who is coming. And he would be a king. He would be the king and people were recognizing Jesus as the king, as Jesus had, had grown up. He was walking throughout Israel and look at what people are saying about him. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. People are recognizing Jesus as the promised one who's come to do what God said he was going to come and do. And this person, Jesus, who came down, he was going to be a light to the nations. This was the promise made to Abraham. Isaiah 49, going back to the Old Testament. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. And this is the promise about Jesus. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation, my rescue plan may reach to the end of the earth. That Jesus is the light to the nations. That you and I, we've rebelled. We're just like our, our, our first parents. We rebelled. If our first parents didn't do it, we would have gone to the tree and eaten. We would have. We don't have to teach our children how to disobey. They just do. It's in them. Like, oh, look at that, look at that child, so innocent. Like, eh, you gotta spend more time with this child. They're not so innocent, right? But Jesus was the truly innocent one. He was the sinless one who, who came down for us. See, Jesus didn't come to, to just show off. Ah, oh, look at what it looks like to live a perfect life. Jesus actually came to lay his life down as a ransom. You think about kidnapping, there's a ransom that needs to be paid so that people can be freed. Jesus came to lay his life down as a ransom so that you and I can be free. This is, this is the good news that, that followers of Jesus talk about. It's not, oh, the good news is you get to go on a Sunday morning and sit in a theater and hear someone talk to you. Like, how many of us love getting up early in the morning to do that, right? But we get to come and we get to hear of good news. And, and our hearts hopefully are saying, yes, this is, what, this is what I'm defined by. This is the best news. And then we as the people of God get to go and we get to declare and demonstrate the realities that this is true. Because this is the hero that every Marvel movie is trying to display and there's always a crack in the armor of these superheroes. But in Jesus, there's no crack in his armor. And he's the true hero who comes to lay his life down. Why? So that you and I can be brought back into relationship with God. So that you and I can once again join the family of God and partner with this father who loves us to now go and display the glory of God in every nook and cranny of this earth. That Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. He went to the cross and he knew he was going to the cross. Mark chapter nine, verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man, meaning him, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew that this was coming. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't like, what the? Like, who are these people coming to get me? Jesus knew that he was going to be delivered into his death. And he knew about it because he had already told his people hundreds of years before. In the book of Isaiah, Old Testament, before Jesus, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was looking forward to Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Said a different way, Paul in the New Testament says, for our sake, you and me, our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus didn't know any sin, but Jesus became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Crazy thing happens on the cross. It's called the great exchange. The perfect innocent one goes to die and he takes on to himself all of our guilt and shame and blame for what we've done. And then for any who will say, Jesus, will you give me your righteousness? Will you give me your right standing with God? Will you give that to me? then we get his right standing. We become righteous. We lose our sinful stains. It's done, it's paid for. This is what, this is what Jesus came to do. So I, I said we were reading or listening to Narnia and that beautiful piece where uh, Aslan unpacks you know, the, the deep magic and how if, if a perfect one dies in place of a traitor, the traitor receives or is imputed the status of of the perfect one. So Edmund gets to receive Aslan's work. Edmund gets to be free and then Aslan rises from the dead. This is what happens. That's, That's a picture of the story of what Jesus has done. So he's crucified and you say, oh, that's really bad news. This, this, this story of, of the Bible is bad news. It's leading to a crucified, a crucified God. What good is it if God is dead? But, but the good news is that God isn't dead. The good news is that you can't go to Israel and find Jesus's tomb, go in and like pet his ribs. You can't do that because he's no longer dead. This thing called resurrection happened that Jesus came out of the tomb Three days after being crucified, on a Sunday morning, everything changed. And since that time, death itself has been dying. Let me unpack this because some of you are gonna say, this is nutso, this is where, uh, this is where things get crazy and I veer off and you people believe fairy tales and myths and whatnot, so here it is. Um, the evidence says that there was a tomb Jesus was placed inside of a tomb and that there were guards that came and were watching over this tomb. Not because they were worried about a dead person getting out, but they were worried about the disciples of Jesus coming and making it seem like a resurrection had taken place. So they had many soldiers come and protect this. Now, if you're a a fisherman or even if you're a zealot or someone who's very excited, you're not gonna walk up and, and look over the guards and be like, I think I can take them. Right, you're just gonna be like, ah, okay, turn around, walk away. You're not gonna try and do this, right? So th- this guard was in front of the tomb. The resurrection happens, resurrection happens. Uh, you can't stop the work of God. It doesn't matter how many people you put in front of a tomb. It doesn't matter what you say, ah, uh, Christianity can't come into this nation, we're just not welcome here. Those things don't, don't apply to the work of God. So when the resurrection happens, uh, the guards, you know, it says that they, they fell back like dead and, and they, they went back into the city. And here's the account of what takes place. In the Bible, Matthew 28, 11 to 14, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place. Like, hey, that guy, he rose from the dead. He's gone. Um, what do you want us to do? When they had assembled with the elders, taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers They said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We don't have all the time to get into all of this, but if you're doubting the resurrection, there's so much more uh, to be seen in in this text. So tomb is guarded, resurrection happens, cover up by the officials of that city so that resurrection didn't seem like it took place. But here's where things get kind of weird. In the Bible, and we can't look at all these accounts, but the first people that, to show up at the scene of the resurrection were women. Now, 2,000 years ago in that culture, if you're a woman and you see something, it's kind of like, uh, did anyone else see it? 
Are there any men in the room that might have seen this? Because as a woman, your witness wouldn't be credible. And that sucks. It really does. But that was the reality. But what did do, what do the writers of scripture do? They call out the women. It was the women who arrived first. The women saw, saw this. The women said this. So if this wasn't true, it was really dumb of the authors of scripture to put women in there. Because right away, it would have been like, this is discredited. This is not valid evidence at all. But they put the women there, so we have to deal with that. And then there are these several resurrection appearances where Jesus shows up, resurrected body to people. One of them being a guy named Thomas. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first came uh, to be with his disciples. Thomas says, oh, I'm not gonna believe it unless I can put my, my finger into the, his the, the place where the nails were, into his side, I'm not gonna believe it. So Jesus shows up again later and, and Thomas says, my Lord, my God, like I, I believe. And we'll look at what happened to Thomas in just a moment. But at one point, Jesus shows up to a crowd of 500 people. When scripture was being written, when it's like, and Jesus appeared to 500 people, it was being written to people that could have said, who are these 500 people? We're gonna go back and examine who these 500 people were. There, there, was, there was evidence at the time that, that could lead people back to the facts. But part of the biggest evidence about the resurrection of Jesus is that something changed in the disciples after the resurrection. So these disciples, the night that Jesus was betrayed and was led to be crucified, the disciples all fell away, they all fled. Peter denied Jesus three times they wanted nothing to do with this, scared. After Jesus rises from the dead, we see a different group of disciples. We see a group of disciples that weren't just willing to say things that people didn't believe or want to affirm, but they actually gave their lives up for it. And here's the thing, groups don't hold on to what they don't believe to be true when life is on the line. You don't get a whole group of people to all agree to something unless it's true. There's always that guy that's like, all right, I'll tell as long as my life is spared. But let me give you, let me give you the trajectory for all of the people who are followers of Jesus. Peter was crucified in Rome. These are the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, minus Judas and the insertion of, of, of Paul. So Peter was crucified in Rome. He wanted to be crucified upside down according to tradition because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. Andrew was crucified in Greece. James was killed by Herod. We can see that in the Bible, Acts chapter 12. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Bartholomew was flayed, which means that they just pull off your outer skin. Uh, he was flayed in Ar Armenia. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Thomas, doubting Thomas, the one that was like, I can't believe this. He was martyred in, um, in India, in Chennai or what, what is now today Chennai. Uh, Thaddeus uh, was martyred in Persia. James was crucified in, in Egypt. Simon was crucified. Paul, uh, who was a Christian killer, but then became a follower of Jesus and wrote most of the New Testament, he was beheaded. And John, um, they tried to kill John a bunch of times, but they couldn't, so they put him on the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote Revelation. Uh, and then he died at an old age in Ephesus. Um, these were people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. These were people who, who were dying because of, of this truth. But these were people who were willing to walk away from it all before the resurrection. So there was something in these people that changed. And this is where we see the importance of the resurrection in, in scripture. And here Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 22. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, this is, this is beautiful. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Paul is saying, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then you should feel so bad for us. We're idiots, pity us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection, the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If this isn't true, if the story of scripture, I've just gave you mostly all of the Bible, I'll finish it up in just a second. If this isn't true, if the resurrection didn't happen, all of this is a joke, all of it. 
you should feel so bad for us if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. But if it's true, then everything changes. Everything. Meaning that this is something that, that you're now willing to, to even die for. Because you found your life, you found your new value, you found your meaning, you found your purpose, you found the true and living God who made you for him and who invites you into relationship with him. And then we have this, this God who resurrects, makes a new people, and he's coming back for us. He's coming back. Revelation 22, last book in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He's coming back. He's coming back, and he's coming back as a husband for his bride. The church is his bride, his collective bride. Like a husband comes for his bride, so Jesus is coming for his people. But he's also coming as a righteous judge. And this is the hard news. That he's coming as a righteous judge. So all of those who would say, I hear all of this, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, I understand the story of God, God coming for, for people to rescue them, but I want nothing to do with this then Jesus is gonna come as a judge. He's not gonna come as, as a little baby, humble and meek. He's gonna come as a powerful warrior for the glory and fame of his father. We have a frightening image of Jesus in Revelation 19. It says, then I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, this is Jesus. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming as a judge. He's coming as a judge. But the good news is that he's already taken the offenses that you don't ever have to see Jesus as a judge. You can see him as your rescuer, as your king, as the one who's coming to bring you into his family because he already took the offenses, your offenses onto him on the cross. You're invited now. The reality of this story is that every knee will bow, whether by faith or by force, to Jesus as king. Yesterday, I got to preach my uncle's funeral. Let me tell you briefly about my uncle and then we'll, we'll wrap up. My, my uncle, 75 years old, uh, my uncle wanted nothing to do with God. My uncle lived a, a life very far from God. My uncle kept my aunt from being part of a church. He thought the church would just manipulate her and he wanted nothing to do with any of it. Uh, we went home, we went back to Maine for Christmas break. Uh, I planned to be there until January 3rd. I got news on January 1st that his cancer, we had skin cancer and it went into his lungs and he had hours to a few days to live. So went to bed that night, woke up and very strong sense that I need to go and talk to my uncle. My uncle who wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. So I went into the hospital and my uncle says, Dwight, this is it. And I said, yep, you're right. And he says, yeah, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. And I said, yeah. Well, Uncle Bruce, you're gonna meet Jesus. I said, there's two ways that, that you can meet him. I said, one, he's gonna be a, a judge. He can be a judge. And we talked about what that looks like. And I said, but the second way you can meet Jesus, this Jesus you want nothing to do with your entire life is you can meet him as your rescuer and as your king. And we talked about the this, this story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Because as Jesus was being crucified, there was a man next to him being crucified who was a criminal, who was a thief. And he looked to Jesus as he was dying and he realized who Jesus was. That Jesus was the sinless one who was dying unjustly. And he looks to him and he says, remember me today when you enter into your kingdom. 
There's no like, oh wow, I understand that you are, you are God incarnate. I understand the incarnation. I get the eternality of all things. I understand it. Like none of that. Simple. Remember me today. Remember me today. I'm looking to you and your work. And Jesus says today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. I'm gonna bring you to be with me. And as my uncle talk, and I talked about this, we talked about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, I, I want that. And I said, well, hold on, Uncle Bruce. This means that you are no longer the leader of your life. This means that you're not in charge. This means you're giving all of your rebellion to Jesus and he's gonna pay for it and there's nothing you can do. You're like the thief on the cross. You can't leave the hospital and do nice deeds for people as if that would do anything. And he said, I, I want that. And so on January 2nd, my uncle became a follower of Jesus. Four days before he went to be with Jesus. And so yesterday at his funeral, I got to tell a room of mostly not yet Christians about my uncle, a, a person they had never known to be that. He was not a religious man whatsoever, but now a man because of Jesus' work who is now in the presence of the one that he was made to be for. And then I invited people to respond to that. One of his grandsons came up to me later and says, I want that. This is the work that Jesus does. This is his story. That Jesus says, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from, I'm wooing you in. I'm the one you're really looking for. It doesn't matter if you're on your deathbed because I said to my Uncle Bruce after that, I said, or he said, um, I've wasted my life. I haven't been following Jesus. I said, Uncle Bruce, your life is just beginning. You're a new creation. You're now rescued by Jesus and for all of eternity, you're gonna be enjoying him. He says, I can't wait to do that. This is the story that has impacted millions and millions and millions of people. And this is how the story ends. The curse is removed. The curse is removed. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, we find out that our bodies will be made just like Jesus. We're gonna be with him. Revelation 21, 3, 4 says that he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. God is gonna remove it all. He's gonna make everything new. I'm flying through these. Isaiah 25 says that there's gonna be this, this huge party in verse seven. It says he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is the story we belong to. We brought death into the world and this story says that God is gonna drink it out of the world. Drinks up death, removes it forever and invites us into this eternal party with him where we are made new, our guilt is scrubbed, our sin is removed and we are now part of his family. And that longing to be satisfied can now be full because you've met the one that you were made for. This is the story and the message that you belong to. This is the story of, of scripture that God rescues his enemies. He rescues his traitors. He only rescues enemies. He only rescues traitors. He only goes after orphans and brings them into his family. You're invited into that. You're here this morning, you're saying, man, this story is beautiful, I went in on that. Well, like my Uncle Bruce, you can be this morning. You can say right where you're sitting, Jesus, forgive me. I need you to be my leader. I surrender everything to you. And Jesus would say, you're mine. You're a new creation. You've been forgiven of everything. And now you get to start following me. My Uncle Bruce only followed Jesus for four days before going to be in his presence. But maybe for you, you get 40 years, maybe you get 60 years, maybe whatever, but this is just the beginning that you can meet him today, that he died and lives for you. He's coming back for you and he calls us to respond to him now. Don't wait. If this moves in you now, don't wait to ask Jesus to do this. And if we're a follower of Jesus, then here's what he does. He sends us back out into the world. Joyful, because this is our story. 
At one point you were spiritually dead and you've been brought to life and we get sent back out. This is our story that we belong to. And so we get to go and we get to tell, we get to do things like uncover McGill. And we're not saying, ah, you need to become like us. We're saying, this is, let, let me offer you up this. We offer you, is this what you want? Is, is this what you're longing for? We get to go into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces and offer up this story to people. This isn't just a religious moral story. This is a story of a God who rescues his enemies to make them his family. And so this is the Bible. And we should laugh over it. In fact, we, sh we should laugh because death has been defeated, that we get to be brought into this new life. And so I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond this morning to what we've heard. Lord, thank you, this is, this is true. Thank you that at one point, I, I didn't believe this was true. I had no idea how this was going to be helpful to me and yet you rescued me, you changed me. This, you, you broke into my life. And this is a story of, of, of so many of us, you broke into our life when we weren't looking for you. And you convinced us that, that this was the, the true myth, the myth come true, that we've all been longing. And you satisfied us. I wanna pray for those of us who are here this morning who don't yet know you, that this morning would be a morning where, where we would say, Jesus, you are my savior. You died for me and you live for me. And, and now I, I wanna be a follower of you. Would you change me? Thank you that that you're faithful to that. And for those of us who have known you for a really long time, would you renew our joy this morning? Would you be joyful that, man, we are called sons and daughters of the living God. We get to go with, with the story that every other story is trying to mimic and imitate. Every movie, every book is trying to tell the true story that you came to rescue people. I pray that you would rescue Montreal, that you would take Quebec and, and, and change it from being the, the least reached people group in the Western Hemisphere to becoming the most reached people group in, in the world. That we would see so much good news work happening here. That we would see people obsessed with Jesus. That this would transform everything about who we are and what we are as a city, that this, that this cross on the top of, of our hill in the middle of the city would, would mean something. That we would get our identity from you, Jesus, and we would be your servants. Would you help us to respond this morning to what we've heard? We love you and we need you for everything. Amen.